Hello, and welcome to the Anxiety Rx podcast, a show created by an anxiety specialist and neuroscientist, me, that offers unique, practical, and actionable advice to help you understand what anxiety truly is and exactly what you can do to empower yourself to resolve it. I'm your host, Dr. Russell Kennedy, an MD who suffered with crippling anxiety for 30-plus years, and traditional therapy from psychiatrists and psychologists really didn't help me feel better. And I also didn't like being on psych meds. In 2013, after burning out and leaving medical practice, I came to the conclusion that if I was ever going to heal my anxiety, I would have to do it myself. And that's exactly what I did, drawing from experiences with psychedelics and holistic healing and combining those modalities with my scientific academic background in medicine, neuroscience, and developmental psychology. Here on the Anxiety Arcs podcast, I offer a distinctly non-traditional and non-medical approach to understanding and healing anxiety. So despite the fact I'm trained as a physician, in no way is what I say and suggest to be construed as medical advice because none of the ways I use to resolve anxiety has anything to do with traditional allopathic medicine. From my own healing, I've created a distinctly non-traditional understanding and approach that helps thousands of people from all over the world understand and relieve their chronic anxiety. So if you're ready, let's get into today's episode. Hey, welcome to the Anxiety Rx Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Russell Kennedy, and I have someone with me today who I've been looking forward to talking to for a long time. I've admired her stuff on Instagram, and I said, man, she just, you know, it sounds so much like my stuff. So it's like, I eventually, I have to get her on the show. So finally, Jessica Baum is here. She's an LMHC and a psychotherapist. She sees couples, she sees individuals, and she wrote this great book called Anxiously Attached. So welcome, Jessica. Thanks for being here. Yes, I'm so glad to be here and having this conversation with you today. I feel like it was a long time coming, yet it's perfect happening in today's timing. Yeah, great. So it's, you know, I think attachment is such a hot topic, right? Like, and it's so, in a way, it's kind of overused. Like so many, I see it on Instagram, like someone said, oh, this is attachment, that's attachment. It's like, well, yes and no. And I think there's a lot of misconceptions about attachment. So you know, in a, in, a, in a short version, what do you think your version of attachment means? Oh, God. Well, attachment is so complicated, but it's, um, you know, I study interpersonal neurobiology. So it's the way in which we learn to connect and the way we learn to kind of um, seek connection or adapt to our environment when we're really young and the way our nervous system and our body adapts towards connection and safety or disconnection that gets hardwired in our being. And then that, that those adaptive strategies get played out later when we connect to our romantic partner and to anybody we have formed deep relationship with. So we end up repeating or using our adaptive strategies that are learned early on and our nervous system remembers certain things. So that's kind of my understanding. And so there's labels and there's all this creative ways of understanding it, but it's truly how we learn to stay in connection is how we will repeat it or stay safe or quote unquote, think we're staying safe. Um, we will bring that into our romantic life. We'll bring that in with our bosses, the people that we deeply bond with. Right. Yeah. And I think it is one of those things that people just don't understand that they have an attachment type and, and your attachment type can be different with different people. Right. That's uh-huh. the other thing. People think that there's just one, like I'm, I'm anxiously attached. Well, you can be anxiously attached to one person and avoidantly attached to another. So it's, I think it's not this sort of one size fits all that everybody seems to sort of put it out there on the internet. 
Yeah, yes and no. I mean, I have a certain adaptive strategy that fits in that category, but attachment is a combination of two people's embedded embedded patterns playing out together. So you might have a way in which you avoid or a way in which you deal with pain and then combine that with whomever you're with and then right. that pattern together creates a new pattern altogether. So it, it is, yeah, I've, I've showed up anxious in one relationship and a little bit of avoidant in another and we have pockets of disorganized so we, we absolutely have all of that inside of us. Sure. So, Yeah, I think it's just, it's so important to, to develop some awareness around it too, because if you can see what your natural tendency is, I mean, Freud called it the repetition compulsion, you know, what was normal for you in your childhood, you're going to unconsciously repeat in your adulthood. So for me, I grew up with a schizophrenic dad. Uh, who was great at points, you know, very connected, very loving, very playful, and then psychotic at points. So never, you know, abusive or violent, but just crazy. So I, I would love him. And then he would go crazy. And I would go, what the hell's going on? Like I'm seven, eight, 10 years old. And so what I learned was my, my attachment thing was that don't get too close to someone because they're just going to get pulled, just going to get pulled away from you. And that's kind of a, that's kind of a pattern that I, I see in my life. Like don't get too happy with something because it's just all going to get pulled away from you. So it's just, it's, and I, I replicate that in my, in my relationships. You know, I've been married three times and, and that kind of thing. The last time for 10 years, I think I, I think I finally nailed it the last time, but uh, it's just really interesting to see how these things sort of unconsciously play out. And then once you see them, you don't have to be them so much. Yeah, I mean, I think once you start to see them, you might still be them, but then you're in this weird phase of being them consciously, and you're like, oh my God, now I'm starting to see my patterns. And then I think, for me, it takes a long time to kind of undo the patterns, but at least you're becoming conscious, right? And that's the whole point is, you know, we have these implicit memories inside of us and ways in which we adapted and survived that we're not even conscious of. And then when we can start to really get in touch with them and get conscious of them, we have the opportunity to change them. And and that is a lot of work. And it's also wonderful when we can really do that type of work, which is also incredibly hard. <laughs> yeah. I notice a lot in your, in your Instagram, you talk about the younger self or the inner child. Like, I find people like get a little bit uh, freaked out by the inner child term. And I find the people that get most freaked out by the term inner child that, that rail against it the most are the ones that have the most inner child damage. But it's really interesting to, to, to see that, you know, unless we go back and find that, you know, part of us that wasn't seen, wasn't heard, wasn't understood, wasn't loved, you know, until we go back and connect with that younger version of ourselves, all the other kind of healings, they don't really seem to stick. Yeah, I mean, I talk a lot about sensation in my book and sensation being the earliest form of memory and the sensational experiences in our body being attached to our younger selves. And I think that healing, like people can't heal unless they have safety, right? So right. if we don't feel safe in a relationship and we heal in healing relationships and we don't have a level of safety or a container or even a safe environment, we won't be able to go to our younger self. We won't be able to feel in. We'll become disconnected and disembodied as a form of staying safe. So there's no nothing wrong with that, but we need certain things in order to drop in and connect to our inner child or our memory system. If not, we stay disconnected for good reason. So I always kind of try to meet people where they're at and 
provide a, you know, a system, a ventral system of safety the best that I can in hopes that they will get more embodied and more in touch with their memory system. And you're absolutely right. People who struggle with inner child stuff, you know, they're, they're probably in denial or, or maybe not having access to that part of them because there's not enough safety in their world to even go there. Right. And I think that's so critical that if there isn't safety, we can't heal. And if we're if we don't feel safe, we're going to default back to the unsafe patterns of our childhood as a as a measure of coping. You know, and there's so many things out there that help people cope, but they don't really help people heal. And what I find is that unless you go and find that child that's in you and show them that they're seen, heard, understood, like understanding, show the child in you, I understand where you came from. I understand why you got bullied. I understand why you withdrew. I understand how you do this. You know, have a conversation with that younger version of you and they may not answer right away. And that's the, that's the advantage of having a, you know, a skilled therapist to kind of say, Hey, you know, would it be safe if we talk to little, little Jess or what it, would it be safe if we can just sort of go into some of her sensations, some of her body memories and just sit there with them. Just, you know, as, as Peter Levine talks about, you know, sensations, images, you know, affect, uh, behaviors, you know, memories, these things are really important to get to that felt sense that you're talking about, that sensation, because if we can get to the sensation, that's the part that actually is the underpinning of our behavior. Yeah, for sure. And I think that... Um our body has an inherent wisdom to it. And if mm. we're looking to heal, we might gravitate towards people who can hold that space um, for us to get into the sensation. And, and people don't want to hear, hear this, but healing means feeling. Yeah. Healing means having the capacity to get in touch with our own suffering. And often if the suffering was really early, which many of us go through, we mm -hmm. cannot re-experience that without the accompaniment of someone who can actually help us go there. And so we psychically know that. And so we detach until we are in the presence of what our system will recognize as this person is safe. And then we can't fake it. It will just organically, our inherent wisdom will show us what we need. I know over this like past summer, I had an experience where I started seeing my infant self and I started having infant dreams and I started getting in touch with all this embedded trauma. And I was like, oh my God, this is so scary and terrifying. And everyone was like, this is brilliant. Like yeah. your psyche is actually safe enough or in a safe enough space to release your earliest experiences. And I'm like, one way to look at it. Yes. Yeah. And it, it, you know, but it has to be in that container of safety and it has to be sort of titrated as well. You have to be able to kind of, cause it's so, I think so often when we look at, you know, these quick fix strategies on the internet, you know, they fire people directly into their trauma. And, you know, it's so important to say, you know, is it okay if we go into this sensation? Because a lot of my work with anxiety is saying, you know, where do you feel that alarm? I call anxiety alarm. I don't really call it anxiety that much. Because I think words have consciousness to them. And I think the word uh, anxiety doesn't have a lot of consciousness. You know, a lot of people uh -huh. don't understand even what anxiety is. Right. But everybody's been alarmed. You know, everybody's been alarmed at some point. So it's it's really understanding, okay, where do you feel that alarm in your body? Uh -huh. And for me, I, I locate it. Like for me, it's in my solar plexus. And I wrote about that in the book. But for a lot of people, especially um, women who had narcissistic or domineering mothers, they will have their alarm a lot of the times in their throat. 
Like they, they couldn't say to their mother what they really wanted to say. And that energy is still trapped there. And I say, well, can you put your hand over it? Can you, can you describe it? Does it have a color? Does it have a shape? Does it have a temperature? Is it deep? Is it superficial? Like where is this alarm? Because I do really feel that that sense of alarm is a conduit to that younger version of ourselves through sensation, as you say in your book. And that, that's how we change it. We don't change it cognitively. You know, we have these cognitive structures and we have these subcortical structures, you know, amygdala, pons, uh, brainstem, all this stuff. None of those structures, pons, amygdala, brainstem, understand language. So why are we trying to use language to change these programs that, have, that aren't mediated by language? They're reinforced by language, but they're not mediated by them. Yeah. Well, I mean, our left hemisphere wants to kind of make sense of everything. Sure. This is really right to write. And I think that, you know, you're absolutely right. I mean, that's the type of work I do in my practice is let's go to the throat and let's be with that sensation and understand that that sensation is probably an embodied memory and needs a holding, right? So it's holding our uncomfortable sensations in the presence of people who can hold them with us that makes our window of tolerance expand, that makes us have the capacity to be with more and more parts of ourselves and integrate more and more. And so I think when people are doing the work, it's hard, but I think you kind of start to get it. And um, it takes so, so much courage, so much courage to really just go there and let someone hold those spaces with you and I know it took me a tremendous amount of courage to go there. Um, me too. Yeah, because it, it gets worse. That's the thing about you know uh, helping people with anxiety uh, is it gets worse before it gets better, right? Because we're going in to a place and where you got the, the old ceiling. I think it's Dan Siegel, but you got to feel it to heal it, right? Like you yeah. got to get in there. And it gets worse before it gets better. So that overprotective, you know, what I call the the ego dragon, this, this, you know, omnipotent creature that, that formed when you were, you know, four or five, six years old to protect you is really this dumb dragon. It just, it just automatically tries to protect you. And that protection often puts this wall around you that doesn't really allow you to access these sensations to be able to heal. And when you do access it, it's like danger, 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 danger. So that's what I think, you know, you're talking about having a safe person a safe presence because we heal in community. We heal, you know, in the presence of other people. And I think that's why it's so important to be able to understand that, you know, this is probably going to get worse before it gets better. Because people say, oh, I, I you know, I, I don't want to go to therapy. I don't want to go to therapy. I don't want to therapy. And then finally they, they show up at your door, but they're a mess because that's what brought them finally to therapy. And they think, well, I'll just come in the first day and I'm going to feel a whole lot better. Yeah, no, I mean, it's like, I don't want to scare the listeners, but it's opening up Pandora's box. But I mean, the only way out is through and your system in the right support should release exactly what you're capable of kind of re-experiencing. And, and, you know, I, I remember telling my therapist one time, like, when does this end? And she's like, when you're in your implicit memory is still surfacing and how wonderful is this? And I'm like, I am in the depths of the fire and uh, it gets less intense and it gets more manageable and it deepens your life and the meaning in your life and the quality of your life. And it's totally a hundred percent worth it. And it's, it's hard. It's really, really hard to go there. And yeah, I kind of like feel like ignorance is bliss until, uh-huh. until you're on the other side a little bit more. Yeah. yeah. I think that's really true is people, you know, they, they think, you know, the thing with my people is they're, they're anxious. So they overthink. You know, that they're, and, and I like, like to say that overthinking is underfeeling. And it's not like, it's not like 
people will say, well, no, I feel terrible. I feel terrible when I'm worried. It's like, yeah, but that's a unidimensional way of way of feeling. Like that alarm is this, you're not really feeling joy, pain, sadness, envy, uh, love. You know, you're just feeling this fear, right? And it just sort of overwhelms everything else. It's like having a stereo on it at nine. You're not going to hear anything else. And I think it's just understanding that, you know, there's a lot of thinking that's reinforcing the feeling. And if we can just start making you aware of the thinking first and just seeing the thinking and then grounding in the feeling rather than automatically and, and unconsciously and unwittingly and relentlessly, whenever you feel bad, going into your head and trying to figure it out because the answer isn't in your head. Like it's in your body. You have to, I mean, we have to use cognitive things where you have these huge prefrontal cortices where we're, we're these cognitive creatures, but we really need to understand the feeling part of it and be able to feel it and stay in that feeling. And then that changes our thinking. So I like to say that it's much more effective to change the body, the sensation in the body than it is, um, to change the mind than it is to try and change the mind and change the body. Like the body is much more effective at like taking a deep breath or, you know, putting your hand over your chest. That's a much more effective way of grounding yourself than telling yourself, Hey, relax. Yeah, no, absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, so much more information is coming up from the body and into the brain. And, and that's where I think most therapists and anybody who's doing more of the work is kind of going to, to help you get there. Um, yeah. And our, our, our protector is always there. Sometimes worrying is easier than suffering. So, and, and so, you know, helping someone see the, the place for that until they can be held long enough to get underneath the worrying or what they're actually avoiding by worrying. Right. We're all avoiding whatever core wound is there or whatever, you know, drastic thing our little me does not want to face again on this planet and we'll go great lengths to worry and avoid and to face. And, and I truly think with the right support and safety, we will start to face. And so that's, you know, that's the message. So how do you get people in your, in your work? How do you get people into that sensation? Mostly I am trying to just embody as much presence as I can. And I really, really think that the client, um, knows they have this inherent wisdom. And so part of my work is just trying to slow them down. Mm. And, um, you know, when you're in sympathetic activation or you're in terror all the time, if your system can meet my system and my system's a little bit slower and a little more present, and then I can catch things sometimes and I'd be like, okay, can we slow down? And, and where do you feel that? And, you know, Mm. and start to shift them into the language of sensation. And if if they go back into their head, I just know that their system isn't really ready to go there. But over Mm. time and consistency, they start to recognize my system. And slowly but surely, next thing I know, I'm the person they're crying with. The second they see me, their system recognizes it. But sometimes that takes months before their system feels safe enough to kind of shift to the right hemisphere and really go there with me. So I just try to embody a loving presence and attunement and try to catch little things where I can start to shift them to more of their body and, and out of their head. Yeah. And I'll often explain to people too, like the, um, the insula, this part of our brain, this deep, deep in our brain, it's kind of like the way station, the mediator between top down and bottom up. So when our thinking goes into our body and our body goes into our thinking, the insula is the part of the brain that kind of mediates that. And I think the insula actually holds these implicit body memories. 
you know, this place in our throat that we couldn't, you know, say to our mother or father or whatever, or this place in our heart that just felt like, you know, we had our heart broken so many times, you know, that's mediated by the insula. And unless we get into that sensation and start tinkering around with it a little bit, it doesn't tend to change. You know, if you look at the way that neurological structures are wired, they're potentiated over time. So the more you use that particular pathway, the deeper it gets, like the toboggan in the snow, right? So, so it's like, can we get into that place? Can we access that feeling-based place? Uh, because the insula is also intimately connected with the amygdala as well. So the two of them, you know, if, if you got bitten by a dog, unconsciously, if you see a dog coming down the street, your body is going to go into this fight or flight. You may not even be aware of it. You know, that's why I see people, um, they said, I just had this panic attack out of the blue. And I said, well, what else was happening? It's like, well, you know, there was this, uh, I was walking and there was these dogs. And it's like, well, there you go. Like, like. You don't even recognize the fact that when you were younger, you know, this one particular uh, patient client of mine um, was attacked. She wasn't hurt, but she was kind of charged by these two dogs, which kind of formed in her amygdala because the amygdala never forgets. It has no sense of time. So it, it feels like it's still happening. So it's like, can we get into that sensation? And in that sensation, can we move things around? Can we jiggle things around in there? So that there's all of a sudden this crack of light that appears like, oh, the brain kind of goes... I don't have to go down this pathway this time. I can actually go somewhere else in the presence, as you say, of a supportive you know, therapist or friend or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. And I think like, I always think in terms of neuroception, so like that we have this radar and it's always constantly protecting us based on a lot of information coming at us. And as we start to go there with people, we widen that ability, inner and outer, to... Um, not react, but I think all automatic responses are normal. And it's, it's kind of connecting the dots to like, Oh, this makes perfect sense. Why I responded this way. And let's go back to the root of it and let's be with that and let's hold that. And then we expand our capacity to hopefully not shift next time we're presented or the next 15 times. Yeah, maybe. Exactly. Yeah. And I say to people, it's like, you know, all emotional hyperreaction, if you see someone lose their shit, <laughs> forgive my language, it's like they're in an age regression. Like right. they've reverted back to like a five-year-old or a seven-year-old or whatever that got told no or got shut down for their anger. You know, that was the other thing that I, it's, uh, you know, I'm getting into myself a little bit here today. You know, I'm a little introspective, but... But my mother and father would shut down my anger. I was like an ADHD kid for sure. Like if you, if they would have had that diagnosis back then, like I would have got it labeled with it for sure. So they shut me down a lot. I wasn't allowed to be angry. I wasn't allowed to be emotive or whatever. So is one of those things that that I don't allow myself to actually process those emotions. So for me, it got railroaded into into worry, into into fear. So it's kind of like this thing, like. Whenever I have this emotional overreaction, I know that I've just turned into a five-year-old. And then if you can compassionately connect with that five-year-old, and often I'll tell people, do you have a picture of yourself, you know, when you're at the time your parents divorced or when, you're, when your dog died or whatever, that particular trauma point in your life, do you have a picture of yourself around that time? And can you connect with that picture, even though that's very painful too? Yeah, absolutely. I think you know, when we react or we get very reactive, you know, something deeper is being awakened in us. And if we can look at it as, 
not triggered, but hey, I awakened a younger part of me or awakened a part of me that's been hurt by this behavior before. How many times have I felt this way? What's the earliest time in which I felt this way? Can I start to connect the dots? Then we can get to the root of the pain and we're not shaming ourselves for sometimes our big reactions. Oh, yeah. Because we were ashamed as kids. That's the thing for me. Like when my anger comes up, I immediately feel this shame. And it's like, oh, I know. I remember where this comes from, right? So I'll direct it against, you know, my wife, Cynthia or whatever. And it's like, oh, this isn't really the person, you know, one of the posts I put on Instagram like years ago was like, don't put your your, um, partner in a prison for for a crime that your parents committed. Uh, right? Because so yeah. often we project our, our our failures of our parents onto our, our partners and expect them to fix it, you know? But one of the questions I wanted to ask you just was, was uh, why did you write the book? Oh my God. I wrote the book for so many reasons. I mean, my own struggles with codependency and um, my own struggles in my own personal life. And then also like as a professional, I started working with, um, addiction and in, in a lot of codependency. And, and then I became an Imago therapist. So I started studying relationship dynamics and all of that, like what you just shared, like, why are we projecting this all onto our partner? And it's like, we will continue to project and re-experience our original wounds until we can heal them. And most often that comes up in our personal relationships. And so, you know, you can learn about it all you want, but I also had to experience it too. And so I was having a lot of success, um, in my, in my career and in my, um, office. And I started to really understand the, the underpinnings of interpersonal neurobiology and really studying them. And I have a great mentor and I was like, we got to get this information out for everyone. If I struggled at 20 and 30, (laughs) 40, like everyone, you know, so many people are struggling with this and why isn't this made more accessible and how can I make this more accessible? And so I was just on a mission, basically. Yeah, because, you know, academic psychology, you know, it, it basically teaches a very cognitive approach. And I think the way that universities get funded is they have to have uh, a concretized, you know, this is the way, this is the things we're going to teach. This is what they're going to learn and that kind of stuff. And so much of healing, you know, we're mind, body, spirit creatures. And so much of healing I found, even as a physician and a neuroscientist, is spirit. You know, I know a lot about the mind, I know a lot about the body, but that spiritual component was what I was missing as a physician. And that's one of the reasons why I think physicians often will go to pharmaceuticals because they don't understand, and I love medical doctors, believe I'm not ragging on them. Um, they don't, they're not trained in this sort of more spiritual aspect. So we wind up, you know, treating someone's, you know, um, gastritis or, or reflux with this medication, but they have reflux because they're not saying something to their partner. They're not, they're not allowing their emotions to kind of flow through them. And I don't want to sound like, Oh, we really need to connect with ourselves and our bodies. Like, you know, cause the medical doctor in me listens to that stuff and wants to have a seizure, but it is one of those things that it's so antithetical to how I was trained as a medical doctor. And we don't understand the spiritual component to it. And we start, we start, um, Getting into science, like science is the answer. You know, the advances we made in neuroscience in the last 20 years have been just amazing. But very little of those neuroscientific advan- uh, advances have actually lend itself to the clinical picture with a client, with a patient. 
So all we have all this knowledge about the brain, but <clears throat> it hasn't really given us a lot of clinical uh, acumen as far as helping people goes. And I think that gets reinforced by this academic picture, this very cognitive academic picture in the universities for, you know, masters of, of counseling and, and this kind of thing where we're not teaching them about the, the spirit because we can't quantify that. You know, you can't get a, a grant to sort of study the spirit kind of thing. But so much of spirit is, is what actually heals you. Absolutely. I think what you're speaking to and kind of the way I make sense of that is that we're approaching treatment from the left hemisphere and we're labeling it. We're trying to come up with a diagnostic. And while there's a place for that, and I definitely think anchoring myself in the science can help me feel very good and very safe uh, when we approach from more of a right hemisphere way of being and we're with our client and we're with their wisdom and we start to connect with the energy in between and we start to look more holistically, we can start to see that like, you know, all these diagnoses or these labels are really part of this whole picture and we can totally. connect, you know, in a whole way to someone and hopefully not just give a prescription or, you know, a treatment plan for something that's like, you know, human to human and, and is so much more complicated and that we like to simplify. And it's simply not that way. Or we like to relate to it from a very um, concrete way when really it's it's so much more spiritual. It's I was I was actually doing personal therapy with my therapist this week and I said something to her about spirit. And she said, what's happening between us right now is all spirit. And I said, I really appreciate it. I really appreciate her. Um, and I really appreciate that because so much of what we're taught in school is there, but so much of what we're doing is, is soul to soul and connect. And it's all about connection and connection to connection and being present with someone and really listening to your client and in the medical field, really seeing them as a human and trying not to go straight to like, Oh, they, they've checked these boxes. So they must have this disorder and need this treatment plan. It's like, we're so quick to do that when that can be very detrimental to looking at the wholeness of, of someone and their essence. Yeah. And I think us medical doctors, we, a lot of us is because we have to see so many people, we don't have the time to really slow things down for one. We don't have time to get into that right hemisphere, but I wish medical doctors would see, can you, can you uh, refer to like a somatic therapist or someone who uses that because so many of the medical doctors, they look at this stuff as kind of witchcraft. So what I like to do when I, when I speak with medical doctors is to talk about the, the prefrontal cortex, talk about the bed nucleus of the stri terminalis, talk about the anterior cingulate cortex, like use their language and say, this is what happens in your patient. When your patient comes in with a 50 different, you know, 50 different complaints from different parts of the body, think childhood trauma, don't think Lyme disease. Because it's not Lyme disease; it's childhood trauma. But the but the problem with that is that they they don't know what to do with childhood trauma. So that's what I'm saying is like get as medical doctors get really aware of these people that are dealing with the somatic. Like the, the, you can refer them to to someone who can actually help them deal with this, rather than just giving them a, a prescription. Now, psych meds can be life changing and and life saving in many in many ways, but. You know, when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail and doctors are pharmaceutical sledgehammers. So everything, you know, looks like something that should be treated with a drug. And unfortunately, that masks a lot of the symptoms that we need as therapists to be able to get into the body and actually get to the root cause of the problem. That was a, a very long way of getting back to where I was trying to get. No, I, I appreciate that. I think 
unfortunately, there's not enough safety or awareness in our world. And somatically, when we suppress and disconnect, which I've done for years because I didn't have safety in my world, that will cause inflammation in the body. And the inflammation in the body then causes disease. And Gabe Mate talks a lot about this. And a lot of that inability to go there comes from developmental trauma. And, you know, we're just surviving until we can slow down and be with um, we will develop other ways of acting out. And if we can't act out what's going on inside of us, we will then, you know, we will then cut our body will then create a, you know, create a dysfunction or a, you know, an illness will show up. And often that is deeply rooted in early developmental trauma. So yeah. as a way of protecting, you know, because it's, and, and our DNA will get affected, the methylation in our DNA, all that stuff, because we will go to a mode of protection rather than growth. So if we are born into a family that's loving, caring, attached, nurtured, attuned, our DNA will fulfill its authentic purpose. But if we grow into a family that's got dysfunction or addiction or whatever, we develop this protective, you know, methylated DNA. We don't start, uh, we, we, tra- we flow, the genes that flow into proteins that create our behavior and our feeling are protective. They're not growth-minded. So, you know, and, and it's been shown many times that childhood uh, trauma uh, increases interleukin-1, interleukin-6, tumor necrosis factor, C-reactive protein, all these mediators of inflammation. So it's not surprising that people with childhood trauma show up with inflammation. And getting back to medical doctors, they show up in our offices at 40 and 50 with these premature, prematurely inflamed systems that we start saying, oh, rheumatoid arthritis or all this kind of stuff. And it's not. It's basically that they just haven't ever really been seen, heard, loved, and understood in a way that will allow those proteins to shut off. Yeah, absolutely. And it gets even more complicated when we get into epigenetics and all of that. I I was talking to my mentor this week about my dad's side being Holocaust survivors and like what we take on, you know, intergenerationally. And there's so many layers and I appreciate what you're saying so much. And I just don't think our culture understands how much developmental the needs that we don't get met developmentally, how they manifest physically later in our lives. And if we understood that a little bit more, maybe more people would address these issues because who wants to wake up at 50 or 60 with a health problem when really that health problem, you know, originated from, you know, you know, some kind of unmet need or something going on earlier on. Yeah. And I think, you know, 80% of our brain development occurs before five years old, right? So, and our brain development, and, and this is, you know, Bruce Perry, who wrote the book, um, What Happened to You with Oprah, has this neurosequential model of healing, right? And he says, so initially the brainstem, which is the bottom part of the brain, which controls your body, your breathing, your blood pressure, all that stuff, that develops. And if that develops in a safe environment, then the emotional brain develops, the limbic system develops on top of that and develops fairly normally. If the limbic system, the emotional system develops fairly normally, the prefrontal cortex and the cortex develop fairly normally too. But if you get trauma, and this is the whole Romanian orphan things, you know, if you have trauma from the time you're born, your brainstem doesn't develop properly. If your brainstem doesn't develop properly, your emotional brain doesn't develop. It develops very protectively. And if your emotional brain develops in a protective format, your cortex is going to think the world is a very unsafe place and you're going to have the confirmation bias of preferentially looking for threat and that's not that's not going to be good for your physical emotional or mental health as you grow older 
So it's understanding, okay, it, these developmental traumas are so important. Can we go back, which sort of takes us back to the whole inner child thing. Can we go back to the time that these traumas occurred at four, five, six, seven years old or earlier? You know, and can we access that in a, in a sort of a somatic slash spiritual way so we can actually do something about it rather than trying to change a feeling problem with a thinking solution, which just doesn't work? Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of people who are listening, they're probably going to be like, oh, I wasn't born in that. But the truth is, and if you're listening, if your parent was stressed out, dealing with postpartum, um, not in a safety or there were marital issues, this is where we start to develop attachment issues, right? Connection issues. And when there is disconnect, let's say mom is anxious and there's disconnection there, that's exactly what you're talking about. Our system reads this isn't safe. And then that starts to influence the quality of the connection and the quality of our organs and the quality of our development. So that's where attachment, like it seems like our culture is talking a lot about it, but we're really talking about like how safe did you feel in the, the nervous system of your primary caregivers and how was their nervous system affecting yours and your developmental process? So when a client is coming in and they're really upset, but their mom was there for them, but their system is going nuts, it's kind of like she might have physically been there for you, but mm -hmm. some part of your system recognizes that she was not okay at certain right. points. And so it's very hard for clients to really grasp that Right. Um, you know, that it's that we're that tender, we're that impressionable and our parents are literally doing the best they can. I mean, I think yeah. there were studies about nine 11, you know, babies that were born around a nine 11 and how they were impacted. And it's like, we're all doing the best we can. And if our parents are struggling in any way that does get imprinted into our system. And so, and that's okay. And that's part of being human and, and becoming really aware of that. Yeah. And I think the good news is that if you do start addressing this stuff, the you know interleukin one, interleukin six, tumor necrosis factor, those things start to go down in our system. Like we start to actually truly heal rather than just cope. And I think it's so important to understand that you know that that social engagement system that that Dan Siegel talks about: eye contact, tone of voice, positive voice, facial expression, body language. This stuff is what we learn. That, that soothes each other and soothes ourselves. And it starts with, you know, mothers and babies. They look at each other, they coo, they make these, you know, their, their eye contact, they're, they're making these sort of vocalizations that are soothing. And sometimes we didn't get that stuff. You know, I know my mother went back to work five weeks after she had me, right? So, so and I was looked after by Vera downstairs, who was a very nice woman, but was my mom, right? Right. So it's really interesting to kind of see how your nervous system is formed, but you can actually go back and like neurosequentially start healing that. Absolutely. And again, these, these cognitive therapies that are helpful, you know, what I notice about cognitive therapy, and I did a ton of it, like just a ton of it, um, was that once I started getting the somatic grounding, all the things that I learned in somatic therapy said, oh, that's why I do that. That's why that happens. That's why this comes up in me. Oh, all of those things started to sort of like, the, the cracks in the floorboard started to, to, to sort of seal up. But before I had that somatic grounding, it was all just like circulating around in my orbit. And I, I kind of would pick it out every once in a while and understand this a little more or my attachment a little more or whatever. But until I had that somatic grounding, there was no place for these things, these, these teachings to stick.
Mm, absolutely. You know, I one of the things you said, and I talk about it in my book, is you know, anxious people struggle with self-soothing. So self-soothing mm. is a missing developmental link. It's not your problem. It's not your fault if you can't self-soothe, right? And so you might look towards a person or a drink or whatever. If your parent didn't access her or his parasympathetic nervous system, we don't come out of the womb with a fully developed right. parasympathetic nervous system. So we cannot soothe ourselves. So if we didn't get that soothing from one of them, we are missing developmental links. So like you said, we can go back and we can start to get that co-regulation and that soothing from an adult now and we're really dysregulated and internalize that missing piece and eventually develop the neuroplasticity to self-regulate. But that takes time. We need the yeah. co-regulation in order to develop the self-regulation. And then the trust in there too. Like it's all, and then the, the backhanded side of that is that, you know, we trust our therapist but then we project our parents onto our therapist and we stop trusting them because they're like, well, you know, they're giving me this, this, this kindness, this connection. And that wasn't safe when I was younger because my mom was like, this isn't me, but, but I've heard this many times, you know, my mom was very inconsistent. So, you know, this, the, the therapist is now consistent and it's like, well, can I trust this? You know, can I, can I trust this safety? And then, and then they go into their protective mode again, right? So it's Absolutely. this kind of two steps forward, one step back, two steps forward, one step. Because people think, oh, I'll go to, ther I'll go to therapy and I'll just get better week <laughs> right. on week, right? And, right. you know, we don't want to blow them out of the water, but it kind of doesn't work that way. I know. And, and, you know, it's called disconfirming beliefs. You know, it's like we're going to go into it and we're going to have those experiences and then hopefully the therapist or whomever, I mean, it doesn't have to be a therapist, but people in our lives that present us with safety start to show us something different, start to mm. respond a little different than what our system is right. used to. And over a period of time, we become, you know, the possibility that this person won't get angry or this person won't abandon me or this person will be consistent. Our system starts to recognize that that actually is possible and that really starts to shift things. So, I mean, it's all supposed to happen and unfold that way. So getting back to your book, like what do you hope that people will get out of your book? Like who's your ideal reader? My ideal reader is anyone who struggled with codependency or anxious attachment or even avoidant. Um, even a okay. lot of avoidant attachment get a lot out of my book. We're stuck in a pattern of anxious avoidant dance, push-pull relationships. Um, really want to get to the root of their suffering and are willing to go a little bit into the body or at least start to understand how that's all connected because I very much go into somatics in my book. Um, and usually what I've experienced with my book is that it's been opening people up and then they go and they get more work and they go and do more right. help after the book because you can't heal from a book, but as the author, I'm there with you holding you. And then my hope is that you start to find more supportive people and you start to take this information and you start going more into the body and starting to get, get to the core of, of your, your wounds and, you know, you begin to heal. So anyone who's curious who's struggling like I did and just want some answers. You know, I wrote mm. this book for like the 20 year old me. I mean, this is the book that I wish I had. And, um, I've been just getting, it's been doing really phenomenal and a lot of people are getting a lot from it. So I'm just happy that I did it. Yeah. I think it's, it's one of those things that, um, when you put a book into the world and then I see, well, p therapists will send me something back saying, yeah, I took this concept of alarm and anxiety and I made it into this. It's like, yes, exactly. I mean, 
that's not, I didn't think of it. I didn't think of it that way, but I, I love seeing when therapists take my work and they, and they make it their own, right? They just, and I see it sort of creep into the fabric of, of therapy and that kind of thing. That's one of the things that I get the most joy out of. And I'm writing the second edition of my book right now. And, and it's amazing how much I'm changing in, in the thing, because I've, I've, I've done so many podcasts and so many interviews and stuff over the last like three years since I published it initially, I can explain things so much better now. And now I look at the old book because I'm doing it. I'm actually, before I went on with you, I, I was, you know, revising the, the first edition. It's like, man, uh, I'm a better writer now. And I, you know, a lot of this stuff that I wrote, I can see what I was, I could see what I wanted to say, but I couldn't say it. And now I can say it. So it's really exciting for me to kind of go in there and, and shorten it up a little bit too, because it was like 140,000 words. But when you put a book into the world, it really does, you know, it, it changes the consciousness for sure. For sure. Yeah, no, I'm so, so happy. And I'm working on my next and I have a lot of support, a lot of, a lot of support around it. And yeah, we just keep evolving and keep hoping to put things out there to help people become more conscious. I mean, that's the goal. Absolutely. So how can people find the book? And what, what It's called Anxiously Attached. Anxiously Jessica Attached. Jessica B-A-U-M. Anxiously Attached, Becoming More Secure in Life and Love. And it's everywhere. It's in 11 countries. It's on Amazon. It's at Barnes & Nobles. It's on a lot of small venues. Um, so if you just put anxiously attached Jessica Baum, you'll pretty much get it anywhere. And get it, get it, sure. I mean, I don't know offhand what 11 countries is in. It's in a lot of different languages. I actually just saw on Instagram someone posted the Hungarian version yesterday, which was cool to see. Nice. So it's out there in the universe doing its thing. You should be able to find it. And you can link it to Amazon. Um, it's on there if most and, and how can people find you jessica yeah i mean i'm like i don't know if this is a good thing but i'm all over there yeah. too but uh jessica baum lmhc is my instagram handler name uh i have a company called beselfful.com and i have a private practice here in palm beach called the relationship institute of palm beach so all of those ways um you can find me and i'm pretty googleable Googleable. <laughs> I get you. I knew what you were saying. Yeah. 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 Thanks so much, Jessica. It's it's been really a pleasure talking to you. It's, and it's about time, as you said, and that kind of yeah. thing. So so I, I I've been I'm really grateful to have this conversation with you to find a kindred spirit and uh, you know that we can put our books into the world and just change the way that that therapy is done. You know, change it from this very cognitive uh, approach. This you know more somatic, more feeling. You know, because you mm. do have to feel it to heal it. Absolutely. So thanks so much, Jess. Thank you so much for having me. This was so much fun. Bye for now. Bye. So that's it for today's episode. Thanks for listening. And if the Anxiety Rx podcast resonates with you, consider getting my book, also coincidentally called Anxiety Rx. Or you can follow me on any of the social media platforms at The Anxiety MD or my website, www.theanxietymd.com. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you the next time on the Anxiety Rx podcast.